Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy application experience for your customers? With Raygun Application Performance Monitoring, you've got all the information you need right at your fingertips to find and fix errors and performance problems across your tech stack down to the line of code. Raygun makes it easy to monitor the impact of your performance improvements, quickly identify and resolve issues, and see how your code performs in the hands of your customers, saving you time, money, and sanity. Visit Raygun.com and join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every day to deliver flawless experiences for their customers. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, our friend Anthony Vanderhorn is here. Before we introduce him, man, how are you doing out there on the West Coast? Did it get smoky? Oh, yeah, we got the smoke. And not from our own fires. You know, a few years ago, we had we had serious forest fires up here. And so it was smoky here. But we got smoke from the Washington and Oregon fires. Yeah. Which is it, actually a little different. Anything that travels this far. Oh, dude, I was talking about your barbecue. Yeah, that's that. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I got some gojujang. The, uh, Gojujang. The, uh, yeah, the Korean. It's like uh, Korean tomato chili paste. Yeah. yeah. It's really good. And so, yeah, I've been marinating things with it and so forth. So, yeah, we've got a little Korean flair going on on the grill. Lately. Well, that's good. I have been using my Traeger smoker all summer long. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to be unhappy with that. It's you hard to be unhappy. The, the, the box smoker usually gets used for salmon. That's the, that's the smoked item. Uh, I do have some news. Mm-hmm. I am moving out of Pwop. Studios in the Duart building. State Street. Yep, State Street. And moving across the street to the Guard Arts Center. I'm becoming part of the Guard Arts Center family. I'm they call awesome. me their resident genius. Like Oh, that's great. They really, you know, because they've been shut down, yep. they're trying to reinvent themselves with live streaming and stuff, and all their tech people are gone. So Sure. It's just like, hey, Carl, how do I do this? Hey, Carl, can I, you do this for me? Hey, Carl. Well, you know all that stuff. So, yeah. There's a few videos of you doing, performing at The Guard, as I recall. Yeah, too. that's right. Uh, at franklinbrothersband.com, if you go to videos and look for Drive My Car, that was a live concert that we did in the room where the new studio is going to be. And I, yeah, I was there, as I recall. That's too. right. Yes. <laughs> so, that's The Guard. Quite an event. And uh, end of an era, right? Because you originally got that space for training. That's where that was where your training room. That's were. right in two thousand. Wow! And uh, the yeah the training room turned into the studio, mm-hmm. and the studio was was cooking along for a long time. But you know, things being what they are in the economy, and also I think a lot of the downturn in business in the studio was to the fact that um, home studios were just rocking and rolling. I mean, the yeah. gear got really cheap. Yeah, and, and small. Yeah, and people and learned how to like how to turn their walk-in closets into vocal booths, and yeah, you know. Remember, we had Tilo, we had Tilo's one plus ones, multiple phone lines. Like that's how we made stuff work back in yep. the day. Yep. Not so much anymore. All right, well, you know, from the old to the new, let's roll the music yeah. for Better Know Framework because I got a good story for you, which I'm sure you know about. Oh, sure. <laughs> All right, buddy. What do you got? Have you heard of Azure Orbital? Mm-hmm. Announced at Ignite. Yeah, that's right. We just heard about this. Azure Orbital 
is a service to help customers move data from satellites directly into Azure for cloud processing awesome. and storage. So it's it's yeah. literally in the clouds. <laughs> well, okay. I, don't think, I don't think Microsoft's going to put up any satellites, at least not right now. But I think the main thing they're doing is providing linkages for all the download locations directly to Azure centers. Yeah, it's really, right. really so cool. So mostly it's fiber optic cable, but it's still cool. It's very cool. And and I'm going to link to the uh, in the show notes to the story about it and you can uh you can read more about it it's it's pretty high tech well and it just sort of speaks to this is where we are there there is another and this is almost geek out material really there's a subtext of this which is that in general space flight and spacecraft are also getting cheaper yeah and so the cost of infrastructure is becoming more and more relevant right and the expensive operating ranges, the expensive operating downloads, so forth was irrelevant when they were all billion dollar satellites yeah but now that we're talking single digit million dollar satellites suddenly the cost of that is important and so the idea that microsoft could sort of get into the commodity downlink business mm. and possibly even the uplink business so not just taking data down from satellites but perhaps pushing information up to satellites might be the way forward for more low-cost satellite technology so it's pretty it's, darn it's, cool it could be bigger than we realize yeah uh, but it, we're, these are early days, but I'm I'm pretty excited about this. It just speaks to, you know, the continuing evolution of civilization. Absolutely. So that's what I got today, man. Who's talking to us? Well, you know, uh, nobody comments on Anthony's show, so that was not a possibility. But his friend Nick Molnar gets good comments, so I figured I'd use one of his. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Of course I mean, he does. Maybe I, came, I came across a little mean, but actually I'm being funny. Uh, this is a comment from show 1670 about Visual Studio Online with one Nick Molnar. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, Nick and Anthony were inseparable, uh, not quite the same anymore. And that was a show, of course, we were talking about doing development in the cloud, right? That Visual Studio Online has a version of Studio up in the cloud and you can you know, sort of simplify your build process, like just what it takes to put together a machine. And uh, and Josh Hillerup, this is in less than a year ago, made this comment. He says, this is awesome. Although I was expecting it to be called Visual Studio 365, which is fair. Uh, more seriously, this is making me reconsider buying a new laptop. Because of this, I, it can work for me. It would be cheaper to just use a Chromebook or something lightweight to develop on. And it, rather than buying a heavy-duty machine, just pay for the cost of Visual Studio Online. Which, that's a super relevant point. Like, we've been carrying tank laptops for a long time because of the kinds of apps that we're building and the amount of work compute that you need for that. Right. But if you're just bound to the cloud, you can run it on anything. Yep. So exciting stuff. And I think we're going to dive further into that today. So Joshua, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. And please, just you can bypass the satellites. It's okay. Just just send it from your phone. <laughs> no satellites required. What was that? What was that thing? Um, who's the guy who did the, you know, people who are impatient about texts? I didn't get your text in 30 seconds. Oh, it has to go to space. Case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's also the guy. Were you in a chair in the sky? Yeah, Louis C.K. Did you fly magically? <laughs> <laughs> it went to space. <laughs> Give it a minute. <laughs> okay. 
All right. Well, let's bring on Anthony Vanderhorn. Uh, he is a principal developer at Microsoft and most recently has been working on real-time collaboration and development tools, being a founding member of both Visual Studio Live Share and GitHub Codespaces. Day-to-day, he's mostly responsible for the back-end architecture and infrastructure, which drives these products. He's bounced between living and working in New York City and his hometown of Brisbane, Australia. He's back in the USA, making his home in Portland, Oregon. How is Portland right now? Ah, uh, well, today it's sunny and um, blue skies, but uh, we have oh. had a lot of smoke and a lot of protests, as um, I think everyone in the country kind of knows, yeah. or probably mm-hmm. around the planet at this point. Yeah, but you're safe, I hope. We're safe, and so, you know, um, but uh, it's definitely still active, and, yeah. um, or at least the, the protests are. Um, right, right. But uh, yeah, hopefully time will tell, and we'll see. You know what the forcing function is for all of that coming to uh, a, a resolution of some sort. So I'm betting an election, but that's just me. Yeah, I'm betting so too. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, we'll have to see what the protesters on both sides uh, think about the results once that all comes through. It's yeah. uh, going to be interesting. Let's. Yeah, I think the time between November third and January twentieth are going to be very interesting times. Very exactly. Indeed. Yeah. All right. Uh, but you mentioned about you mentioned about Nick before. Um, so as, as it turns that. out, we are still working together. So uh, that's awesome. Yeah. So this makes like seven years or eight years now that we've been working together through like three different companies and like who knows how many reorgs. Uh, but we are product. we are both now working together on GitHub Code Spaces. So there you go. So. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't Visual Studio Online and GitHub Code Spaces the same thing? It is now the same thing, yes. Okay. Uh, basically, there was a rationalization that uh, happened at the business level where they're like, hey, you know, where do we want to direct developers? And, you know, how do we want to market all of this? And do we want to have, you know, two front doors to, to come to this product? Or do we want to make it simple for people? And so they don't have to think about <laughs> making a choice. So tell us about the origin of Codespaces and and how it uh, sort of morphed and got all the way to Visual Studio Online. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, so I remember back in the Glimpse days um, when I was still working on Glimpse, having um, effectively a chat with a couple of business people, and um, they were talking about this idea that they'd had for kind of remote development tools, remote development experiences and stuff like this. And back then, it was very much in its infancy. Now, I'm sure that, you know, depending on who, who you ask, it's a large organization. So the exact genesis of all of this sort of stuff uh, would probably depend on, on who you asked. But I know from my perspective, we started out by working on uh, Visual Studio Live Share. And so from the very beginnings, I remember having conversations with, with different people on the team where it was like, hey, look, we're working on these remote collaboration tools. But very quickly, we realized that, hey, look, I could have my, uh, I could create a VM in the cloud, you know, and start a live share session mm. and, you know, remote into that machine. And that, that was compelling. Effectively, I've made a, a remote workspace. Um, and effectively at that point, just like the, the commenter mentioned, um, to, to Nick's, uh, last podcast, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a compelling scenario, not having to worry about like, hey, what happens if I lose my laptop or I want to upgrade? Like I remember my new laptop I had here, I had sitting on the side for like two months because I wasn't willing to go through the pain of of doing the upgrade and trying to get everything installed. Yeah, um, you, have to, you need to be productive and it takes a while to get a dev machine configured. Exactly. And the other part of that was, you know, looking at, uh, you know, how long does it take to... Uh, onboard a new person into a team. Like we've all yeah. done this where, you know, mm-hmm. either we've tried to onboard a more junior person or someone joining a team or something like this. And it takes them like a week in some cases to, you know, get productive because the amount of different complex dependencies that need to be installed in an environment. A week? Wow. I want to work where you work. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I remember having these conversations at that time. And this was even before live share was fully released. And it was like, I want to work on that. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I totally see this as being the future. But again, at that point, it was a, it was a much bigger risk from a business perspective. And um, so, you know, no people had tried doing remote workspaces in the past but there just wasn't that much pickup or momentum for the idea. And so for at least for me on the ground, it was like, you know, thinking about live share being the vehicle by which we could prove that there was interest in, in this type of remote development tool. Um, And then a lot of the core tech and infrastructure that we built out there, we were able to, you know, reuse to bootstrap uh, the code spaces effort. Um, so I remember, you know, building the first prototype uh, of Code Spaces, and it was kind of like, "Hey, how scrappy can I possibly make this thing?" Hmm. And I basically did it over the Christmas holidays, uh, and that was kind of like the the start of Code Spaces. Wow! At least from a development perspective, business thinking was different, but at least on our side. And what I remember of Code Spaces when I first heard about it, it was very much a Visual Studio Code thing, not a Visual Studio thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got uh, the version of Visual uh, for Visual Studio Code. So originally, we would have liked it to have not mattered at all. Like, hey, look, you're just using Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code. It all just works exactly the same. Right. But reality is a little different. You know, they're very different products, um, yeah. very different architectures. Um, you know, Visual Studio Code tends to lean lend itself much more to a Linux-based environment. Um, whereas Visual Studio and the developers who are working on it typically, you know, want a Windows-based environment. And right. Windows container technology, uh, which is predominantly what we use on the Linux side of the house, uh, just isn't at the same place. Um, and so it is a very different setup. Um, but yeah, we yeah. we effectively have the version that we're working on at the moment and is, 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 is in, you know, private preview uh, for GitHub at the moment. And we're also concurrently working on the uh, Visual Studio version of that. And so um, very interesting problems to go after. Yeah, I'll say. I mean, I, I also look at this as someone who's run teams before, especially remote teams, mm-hmm. and thinking, wow, rather than having to push my source code out to all these different places, I can keep it in a central location. Like essentially, nobody's got my code outside of my tenant my control space. yeah exactly and then the way it works under the covers is like we're only downloading the file that you're working on right um and so from uh, an auditability perspective for enterprises um you know that's that's valuable in knowing mm-hmm. like hey 
you know, who has access to my code and like starting to think about like gig economy stuff and whatever else, you know, that that takes a long time to onboard some of those people. And it's like, you only want them for a week's worth of work. Um, but it takes like a month to provision a laptop to send out to them, you know? Um, and so this is all aimed at trying to, to help with that. Yeah, because we, I mean, you can go down the chocolatey box starter, mm-hmm. new get path to get a fairly automated machine config, mm-hmm. but it's still a big deal. There's nothing compared to, I have a template running in, I guess, GitHub code spaces now, mm-hmm. but I was always thinking about Visual Studio Online. It's mm-hmm. like, here it is. It's running now. Yeah. And, like, and it, for me, yeah. the fact that it's like defined, you know, in a, a Docker container, Um, and that's something that can even be different per branch and all this type of stuff. That's a well-defined technology, a well-understood technology. Developers are already, you know, or at least some developers are already used to using that for production. So the logical extension to say, Hey, look, this is, this is what I want to have. I want to define my development environment. And, you know, one developer on the team goes to the effort of doing that. And, uh, and then that works. Um, that's awesome. But out of the gate too, you don't have to go and create a custom Docker file. Um, you know, you can just point at a repo and, um, you know, say, Hey, start this up in, in GitHub code spaces and it'll start. So we have like a, uh, an image that we, we ship by default that works for, you know, the vast majority of cases for people. And that's yeah. kind of like your quick PR turnaround, like, hey, I want to look at something. And I think that's the other thing that at least I've found is that I think we're all guilty of this, that we've done like a PR review, but we haven't actually run the code. Like we right. can't even necessarily right click and go to definition or, you know, effectively navigate around it. We're kind of stabbing in the dark and going like, that, that looks like it should be right. Um, you know, based on experience, intuition and, you know, all these sorts of things. But, you know, when I'm really doing a review, you know, like normally what I'm doing is pulling the code down locally, you know, going to definition, really walking through it and all these sorts of things, running it and, and getting a feel for what's going on. Mm. And the existing PR flows just don't really support that. Um, and, you know, I think we, they, they do the best they can. But, you know, being able to take that a step further and actually being able to open the code space and, you know, that is not interrupting your local branches, your local commits, or even even your saved state at all. And you're able to switch between PRs. And every time you do that, you get a a defined sandbox, you know, already set up for that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe in a PR, someone's added Redis. And, you know, that's because they've added it to the Docker file you know, you, you open that in a code space and you can play with it and see that working. And then once that gets committed to master, guess what? Everyone else who gets a code space from then on out is going to get Redis installed. And, you know, so, you know, it, it, at least for me, the future is bright. Yeah. 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 No question. And uh, interesting opportunities. The So the live share stuff is when you're still running normal Visual Studio mm-hmm you know, on-prem, mm-hmm. the, the normal configuration, but I still want to collaborate. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like the primary use case for live share. Mm-hmm. Um, right. The other one that we also support is for code spaces. And so this is a, this is a little inception-y, but effectively, you know, when you are running a code space in that remote VM and container um, and you still want to collaborate with someone, you still want to share, 
So the ability to be able to say, hey, look, I want to, you know, be able to do that sharing and have someone come in and help me or maybe it's even even a classroom demonstration. So you could imagine a lecturer in front of the, a group of university students or something and, you know, they've got their container and their code space that they're running. But then he tells all the students to, to go and create their code spaces. So 200 code spaces spawn up, you know, basically off the same you know, wow. git commit and everyone has a successful environment and not one student is raising their hand going like, hey, but mine doesn't work. I can't make yeah. it work. And yeah. then yeah. it's like, hey, you know, who wants to help me write this particular algorithm? And then some student raises their hand and he sends them the link and, um, you know, they can connect. And then, you know, everyone's watching um, either the monitor, you know, which is kind of like the old way of doing it. But mm -hmm. what they can also do is they could join that live share session that's running in that code space in a read-only capacity. So now they're viewing it on their, you know, laptops in full resolution. It's not like you're shipping pixels around the place. This is actually in their Visual Studio code or Visual Studio mm -hmm. that they're actually seeing the real text and, you know, the, the themes that, you know, the individual wants whilst the lecturer and the a given student who was given read-write access is, is working at the problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very powerful. And, I, you know, yes. I know Carl, you, when you, you were teaching classes, you had that battle of getting all the workshop folks up and running. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's something that we've been struggling with for a long time. Yeah, and so we've definitely had a lot of interest from, you know, schools and, you know, academies and uh, coding camps and all sorts of different things on, you know, how do we make it a much higher fidelity experience? Like, I remember, you know, when LiveShare first came out, hearing hearing anecdotes from people where, you know, someone needs absolutely massive fonts on the screen. So, they can basically mm -hmm. only see like 10, 10 letters on the screen at any one time. But because right. that's the way that that person develops, they're productive with that. But whenever someone comes over to work with that person, they, they could hardly do any work. And vice versa, when that person went over to help someone else, they, could, they couldn't see anything yeah, on the screen. screen yeah. And so, to be able to do that sharing and that collaboration session where both parties get to see it the way that they want to see it wow. uh, in their environment is, is fairly huge. Yeah, um, that's a really interesting angle on that. You are actually looking at literally the same code, but you're getting to look at it in the format that works best for you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. That is what, a, amazing. what a great thing to be able to do. Yeah. Um, are people using this for more than pair programming for like, uh, like would Woody Zool totally get into this for doing mob <laughs> programming? You think yeah, he's so, probably already so doing we've, it. we've seen all sorts of different use cases, like the mob programming's one, pair programming's another. Yeah. Um, even checking in with someone before you're pushing a commit and being like, hey, hey, uh, hey, Julie, can you take a look at this? I've got some entity framework code that, you know, I just want your feedback on, you know, and uh, or something like that. You know, th these things are all within scope, like the classroom scenario. Uh, we've even had people who, you know, start a live share session on their computer at home. And so that when they're at work, you know, they can, you know, or when they're at a different computer uh, are able to, you know, kind of get access and do what they need to do. Right. Um, so the breadth of use cases is pretty big. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the de the demo, the classic Amanda Silver demo was I'm working on a programming problem and I I'm struggling with it. So I call PJ Meyer and mm -hmm. he drops in and 
helps me finish it. Or was it the other way around? PJ was struggling in a man to fix it. Exactly. One of them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that I found interesting, if maybe a little contrived, very different from pair programming, which again, also very powerful mm-hmm. concept. I think about how Carl and I've collaborated over script writing for docs mm-hmm. for like ads and things in, I, thought, I think I was at Google, Google Docs, Docs though, yeah. but same thing. Literally typing in two different locations on the same file at the same time. Yeah. And we've seen the same thing happen with like, let's say doc writers. And so you might have like the doc writer and the developer and the doc writer is unsure about something. And so they pull in the developer. And so, right. you know, then they can collaborate um, just like what you were describing to, to work on something and then the developer can drop back out. And again, they haven't had to change their context. It's not like they've had to check out locally a commit or, you know, whatever else. It's, mm-hmm. it's And it's much more real time than a standard PR. Right. You know, I've, and I've certainly been in the scenario where I've been on the phone with someone and we're both working on a GitHub project and then pushing changes in. And it's like, can you see that now? Have you synced it? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, let's look at that. And that's a heck of a lot more clunky than live share. Goodness knows. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So where are these two products headed together or yeah so as as uh, yeah as you kind of pointed out earlier the um uh with we it was visual studio online and uh mm-hmm. it's now uh github code spaces um because there was also visual studio code spaces too right yeah so that's all being unified under github code spaces now you sure we haven't got enough variations on the same flipping name uh-huh. like <laughs> Um, As I'm sure you guys are aware, but maybe for the viewers who aren't, uh, naming, marketing, branding, iconography, you know, all this sort of stuff is... I I heard people say in 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 venues like this that, you know, that was really tough inside of a large organization. It is hugely tough. And so, you know, it's, it's one of these things that... You know, particularly for a project in its infancy, this this is a project that we literally bootstrapped, you know, startup style mm-hmm. inside of Microsoft um, and, you know, kind of brought in the people who are needed and kind of handpicked, mm-hmm. you know, everyone to get this effort off the ground. And so going through the iterations of like, hey, you know, how, how are we seeing this product? Not just how our customers seeing this product, what do we believe it can be? You know, mm-hmm. and where can it best be positioned to help the most number of people, um, which at the end of the day is what it's about. Um, yeah, sure. And but it also seems to me that it's sort of a threshold of success. Mm-hmm. The, by the time you've got the big court parts of Microsoft looking at it, complaining about naming and iconography and sort of pressing on all of those things, you've clearly progressed. Like you're making something people care enough about that the big machine is looking at. Exactly. It. Yeah. And um, so, so that's all, all come to a head, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. And so, GitHub's code spaces is squarely where we're at, um, and um, and that's actually working out really well. We're in private beta at the moment. Um, that's going to be transitioning to public beta slash release, um, you know, at some point uh, soon in the future, um, and then it's going to be available for anyone to use. Um, and that in itself brings up an interesting, uh, problem because for us, you know, as I mentioned, we kind of bootstrapped this effort, um, where it was like, Hey, what's the scrappiest way possible that we could, you know, get all of this stuff up and running. And now all of a sudden it's like, Hey, this has got to work for, you know, GitHub's entire user base. Congratulations. 
And that's like uh, an own, uh, an own uh, shit moment, as it were, in terms of like, hey, does the scrappy decision that I made like a year ago to, you know, to be able to get this to work mm. actually survive contact with, you know, a thousand times or 10,000 times or a hundred thousand times the number of people? Um, and, um, you know, it's, that's been a very interesting exercise for me at the moment, uh, of going through and looking at like, Hey, what's all the various parts of the system that, you know, can scale or can't scale or will likely run into problems or, you know, whatever else. And what, what needs the most love and attention? Because given, given endless manpower and endless money and all of this sort of stuff, you could say, Hey, you know, yeah, we'll do everything, but that's not the case. Unless it's a room full of monkeys. Yeah, yeah. And we, we still have time to market problems and, you know, pressures of trying to meet deadlines and all this sort of stuff. And so it's looking at like, okay, what, what can I actually get done here? You know, how much risk, you know, can we take in, in making various changes? Right. Uh, I'm, I don't want to be woken up by, you know, Scott Guthrie or Nat in the, you know, two o'clock in the morning saying that, yeah. Hey, a change I made at the last minute is, is responsible for, you know, the whole service going down across the planet, you know, that's, right. that's well, not a conversation you want to have. And you haven't even gotten to the revenue side of this in beta, I guess it's still all free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the moment it's all free. So for, don't worry, dude, there's more problems coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> so billing is, is one of those big things that we've, we've oh, been yeah. exercising extremely heavily. And yep. in fact is, you know, just due to the requirements that Microsoft has, on, you know, billing time and all this sort of stuff to our customers of, you know, hey, when was a cost incurred and how quickly uh, is that cost resolved um, is is a huge part of your, again, another big, huge scalability problem that we have within our system um, yeah, sure. and is where we've been putting a lot of time and focus into. And so, making sure that, hey, you know, that, that part of the system has gone through several iterations. Um, you know, and as hopefully cross, cross fingers and toes is in its final evolution. Yeah. And it's something that we've been very heavily exercising behind the scenes where, hey, look, let's not treat not billing people as a downside at the moment. Um, right. Let's treat that as an exercise of, hey, let's make sure we get this stuff right. Um, yeah, I, I was just thinking like you can kill a great idea with a bad billing model. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's really got to be something to think hard about. Yeah, right? exactly. And so I know the business has put a hell of a lot of thought into that. And mm-hmm. uh, on our side, it's then like, hey, trying to exercise that. Um, and you yeah, would think. Validate it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there is a lot of breadth and knowledge w- within an organization like Microsoft. But it's like, hey, look, every project is so different, you know, that it's like, hey, asking another team like, hey, how's your billing model work? And, and how did you write those workers and how did you make it infinitely scalable and, you know, mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff. That's a very different, you know, answer you're going to get from team to team. And, you know, every team is burdened with legacy. You know, by the time yeah. you've, you write it, it's now legacy. Um, and, yeah, and also, I think building models would ultimately evolve. The way people want to buy this when it's new and when they don't quite understand it, it's quite going to be different than when they're deeply into it and, and see it different. Exactly. And so yeah. I know for us at the end of the day, the the core thing that we care about that the model itself, I guess, is built on top of is like how many seconds of a given resource did you use? And right, so yeah. we know the resources that go into, you know, making a code space. And so then it's about like, okay, well, once we, once we can track that all, 
uh, accurately, um, you know, what model do we want to put on top of that? Um, And so luckily we've got a fair few people working on that and, you know, a lot of smart minds. And so, um, you know, we're almost there or at least for the initial iteration, I guess. Awesome. And gentlemen, I'm going to interrupt for one more for this very important message. Hey, Carl here. You know, even the COVID pandemic cannot stop the organizers of .NET Developer Days in Poland from putting together a great show. They moved their entire event online for two days, packed with technical content, three keynotes, and 40 breakout sessions over the course of two days, plus five full-day online pre- and post-con workshops. The conference will run live on October 20th and 21st between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Central European Time. All attendees will also get access to on-demand session recordings after the conference. Check them out at developerdays.pl. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. We're talking to our friend Anthony Van Horn about this project he's been on for a while now that's clearly growing up. It's now GitHub Codespaces, consolidation of the Visual Studio Online and the... And Visual Studio Code Space, like a bunch of name changes, but it's going to be GitHub Code Spaces, both Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code. So, and I, we were talking about licensing beforehand. I don't want to spend too much time on that part, but the actual copy of Visual Studio, which is a non-trivial chunk of software, mm-hmm. that is running in a VM, presumably in Azure, for my benefit. Mm-hmm. Do I need, will I need to own a license to that? Or like, I just think about... I pay for Visual Studio right now, which is, you know, an MSDN subscription is a thousand bucks a year. Mm-hmm. Like that's a, a big change. Can I get rid of that expense just to switch over to this? Yeah. So I know the business is, I, I don't have a definitive answer on that uh, for number one, um, but I know the business is, is very aware of that and is trying to come up with a business model that makes sense Yeah. Um, because getting developers to pay like, you know, triple, you know, that's not going to make a business. No. And so, you know, they're very, very motivated to try and make something that makes sense. Um, I can also see from the other side, because I've certainly dealt with organizations where this person is not a regular developer, but occasionally they need to open a project. You know, and so I don't want to pay for a whole license for them either. Maybe this, you know, for the hour or a week where they need to be in a dev environment, the online solution is financially smart as well as simple, right? I don't Mm -hmm. need to give them that big machine either. Yeah. And again, that's, that's something that the business is very aware of in terms of like, Hey, what are the different use cases? You know, Visual Studio has been around for a long time now. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a fair bit of, you know, uh, cultural knowledge around, you know, the fact that, Hey, there are customers out there who haven't been using the product because of that problem that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and now we have an opportunity to, to try and door. do something about that um, and create a, an onboarding and a, ro- and, a, and a path for them that's way more attractive. What about the whole add-in model? I'm, am I going to be restricted into what I can do to Visual Studio when it's running in code spaces? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'm less familiar with the, the individual architecture details on the Visual Studio side, but I do sure. know that at that level, they are trying to support as many extensions as they can. But I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that at the end of the day, there's, gonna, there's still going to be a blessed set of extensions yeah. at work. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would think if it's in the marketplace, it should be okay. But some weird stuff in the marketplace too. Yeah, well, and that's part of the problem. And this is this is like when you look at Visual Studio versus Visual Studio Code, like Visual Studio is like a, 
uh, like what a twenty-year-old product or something at this yeah, point. Yeah, it, it's got baggage. Yeah, now. and it's, it's got, got a huge amount bad. of baggage. And so, just mm-hmm. take the file system. The amount of extensions that assume that you know, hey, I'm running, I should be able to reach out to the file system and yeah. be able to touch all the files that are here. And in a code space scenario, that's true for visual, the part of Visual Studio that's running in the cloud, but for the part that's running on your local box, that's not true. There's there's only yeah, like right. the one file that you're currently looking at that's on your disk. And so, you know, the whole concept of like virtualized file systems and all this sort of stuff is ultimately the sort of thing that's needed. Um, and, uh, you know, amazingly Visual Studio Code had out of the box, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, on the VS side of the house, just because of the infinite number of possibilities that of what an extension can do, that makes it so much harder. Right. Whereas yeah, Visual yeah. Studio yeah. Code... You know, it, from the get-go, I think they're able to learn from the the different approaches that various IDEs in the industries industry have taken over like the last 20, 30 years and sure. build on that and say, hey, having a bit of an opinion that, you know, there is only certain things like that will allow extensions to do and will provide a sandbox for them to do that in has has made a lot of what we're doing possible. Without that, it's it would be a much harder, harder problem to solve. You talk about the file I'm editing being local on my machine. Does that mean that effectively I'm going to download a version of Visual Studio to be able to use code spaces? Yeah, so, so there's a couple of different modes in which you can run. If you mm-hmm. have Visual Studio code installed locally or you have Visual Studio installed locally, Ultimately, we, we, the, the different products are kind of at different places at the moment, but ultimately the vision is... Yeah, I was going to say, I hate that you said both those things back-to-back, recognizing an installation of Visual Studio code and an installation of Visual Studio yes. represent a much different thing. Oh, yeah. To, to, different demographics. Correct. correct. Yeah. And from an engineering perspective where we are, those, those are two very, very different you know, products and, mm-hmm. you know, yes, we try and reuse code as much as possible and models and, you know, learnings and stuff as much as possible back and forth. But, you know, again, represent very different engineering uh, problems. Um, and so one is like, uh, hey, you know, we're trying to build a bridge across, uh, across a canyon. You know, how do you do yeah. that? And the other one's like, hey, we're trying to, you know, build flying cars to, <laughs> to go across that canyon. And it's kind of like, you know, hey, there might be lessons that can be shared between the two and bits that could be shared, but engineering problem is, is very, very different. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, to answer your original question, the you, you, you can either have the thick client installed, being either Visual mm-hmm. Studio Code or Visual Studio, or use the web version. Now, right. if you use the web version, that at least at the moment is, is strictly against... Um, uh, Visual Studio Code environments, code spaces. Right. Now, what I mean by that is let's say you create a, uh, an environment using or a code space using VS Code, thick client, and you want to keep that around. If you want to connect to that after the fact, you can connect to that using the web version and that just works just fine. Let's say you go ahead and create a code space using Visual Studio and you decide that, hey, you'd like to connect to it using uh, the web IDE. We don't support that currently. Okay. But let's say the same repo that you usually use VS in, there's a PR and that you want to review it, 
you can open that up in the web version just fine um, sure. and do whatever you want there um, using a version of Visual Studio Code that we host in the cloud uh, and that'll work just fine. And then once you've finished your PR review, you can go back to using your Visual Studio uh, code space. But this also begs the question, and clearly I'm showing the way I use Visual Studio. Mm -hmm. What happens when I press F5? <laughs> so, and that's part of the really cool stuff with this. And this is, like, I remember having a conversation uh, with a colleague of mine where we were walking around, you know, one of the soccer fields at Microsoft. And I was mm. like, I might be dumb. Okay. But, and this is back when we were doing live share, but I'm like, right. this, this live share and collaboration is really cool. But I think remote workspaces is where this is all at. And, you know, I want to, when I press F5, I don't want it to use my compute, you know, mm. my CPU. I, my CPU already gets pegged enough, right. you know, and likewise with disk and all this sort of stuff. I, I want that to F5 in the cloud. I want that to build there. In fact, right. it might even be a faster machine than what I have locally. Yeah, almost certainly. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the cool thing that most people don't realize when they're looking at like uh, the, the environments that they run in the cloud is that let's say by default, you might get two cores or four cores. And that doesn't seem like much because it's like, hey, the machine I've got in front of me is like 16 core. But the thing you've got to remember is that that machine in the cloud isn't running Slack and Teams and Outlook and Spotify mm -hmm. and, you know, all these things. And so, it turns out that when you actually get rid of those, you actually don't need that many cores and that many that much CPU to do really quick builds and to do, right. you know, really quick executions of your code and all this sort of stuff. Now, when you do press F5, we go ahead and we, you know, do the build on the remote machine. We do package restores if that needs to happen. And even that can be faster because guess what? You know, a lot of the package managers where they store their packages are much closer to where the VM is in the cloud as opposed to your local machine here. So, all sure. of that sort of stuff generally ends up to being a pretty quick experience. Then for those that are kind of like the, the web optimized scenario, um, or service optimized scenarios, we we do our best to try and detect like, hey, you know, what port when this thing was started up or what ports were actually started. And what we can do is over the uh, socket connection that we have to that remote container and VM, we can actually forward those ports to your local machine. And so, that means like literally you can go like localhost 8080 and you're accessing your website, even though it's a machine in the cloud. And mm, it's it's kind right. of it's it's actually kind of freaky if you That's haven't actually cool. done it before to go F five and actually see this thing start up localhost and you're like wait a sec I thought this was running in a remote container in the cloud <laughs> yeah and then you go and have a look on disk and it's like no there's definitely no files here. And that's just trickery that we're able to do behind the scenes to... I mean, why even say localhost? Why not just admit it's, it's some GUI path mm -hmm. to the cloud, right? But does it literally say localhost? It, it literally does. Like, at least in the... the really twisted, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah at least in the, in the local scenario. And part of the reason for that is, you know, the local development tool chain. So, let's say you've got other tools like some sort of profile or, or something like that on your local right. machine. Some of those don't work so well, you know, let's say with, you know, non-local host scenarios. Mm -hmm. uh, and literally, you know, when we do the port forwarding, if we were to go to a DNS address somewhere, that would actually be slower. Like you got to remember, right. we have a direct socket connection to the, to the VM. 
Okay. Right. So if you were to go to, let's say, a non-local host address, that would imply that instead of the socket connection being directly to you, the socket connection is to whatever that service is, okay, and then down to us. Either that or we would be making some sort of crazy updates to your host file just to arbitrarily make it look different when still it's really local host. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in the web scenario, when you do port forwarding, there is no local you know, agent, as it were, that's running on the machine that can do the port forwarding because the, or, or do the second half of the port forwarding because the, the browser is literally, or the, the, sorry, the IDE is literally in a browser and the browser has right. a sandbox. So there's no way we can do the port forwarding at an OS level to make that show up as local host. Um, and so well, in that case, we actually do have a service in the cloud that your uh, that does have a connection to your VM um, or to your container when you do do the port forwarding. And then you do have a GUID address at that point. Um, right. So even in that scenario, when you're at the airport and your colleague has said, oh, no, the, the everything's burning to the ground. And you make that one line fix, you know, via your browser, but you want to do the right thing, actually make sure it runs. You can yeah. still F5 and you can still see your project. And again, like for people who haven't seen it actually just work, it's, it's kind of mind blowing. Total voodoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Uh, but you can also do things like if you had like Redis installed on that machine and, you know, you have Redis specific tooling locally because we can forward the port, you can connect all of that as if Redis is running locally. Nice. Right. Uh, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah, it does open up the door to all these other work scenarios and our ability to get in and fix stuff and just sort of see where things are. Yeah, absolutely. And I know for us, this is this has been a really awesome project to work on. Um, not only, you know, because the, the, the tech's interesting, but it's like, this is genuinely the product that I want to use. Mm -hmm. Like how often do you get to say, Hey, look, you know, Hey, I have a dream of what I want to work on. And that's the same dream as a bunch of other people. Right. And, you know, that's the thing I'm actually going to be using day in and day yeah. out, probably for the rest of my professional life. Um, that's, that's a pretty cool place to be. That's very cool. Yeah. Super lucky. Like definitely a, con a confluence of forces. I'm just thinking about the person and I'm one of those people that has a great visual studio configuration running on my machine on my big beefy machine right now. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking I probably wouldn't disrupt that. Mm -hmm. I would be doing that and maybe in a new project play with this, or I have a new person coming on board and I would set them up in code spaces. I'm just wondering about the threshold where I go, you know what? I want to go to code spaces now I, for this project. I don't want to set up my machine. Yeah. Well, I think that at least for me, that came much sooner than I expected because, you know, as a more senior person on the team, whenever a junior person does come, it, it was always a pain in the ass to like kind of onboard them and try and, you yeah. know, work through all of their problems. So just because I have that solved doesn't mean that other people have. So my time is getting sunk into helping those people get set up. Right. But more than that, Again, when you're, you're doing, filling more of an architecture role and stuff like this, um, you know, it might go a week or something between, you know, development efforts or spikes that I might be working on. And so when I come back and get latest, none of it works again. And so <laughs> yeah. I've got to try and reach out to everyone on the team and read back through the commits that were changed to find out that someone added some esoteric dependency somewhere. And it's like, oh, okay, thanks. And I got to resync the environment. 
I'm also thinking from the productivity tool mm-hmm. perspective. Like, if you're super comfortable with ReSharper or other tools like that are directly about productivity, like how those behave in this environment and if it changes in any way are going to be very challenging. Mm-hmm. Yep. And again, there are some extensions that, uh, you know, that will be possible in the short term um, and mm-hmm. others that are going to take more time and effort. And that's sure. just, you know, at least on the Visual Studio side, um, you know, being uh, at the edge of the uh, of the wave, as it were. Um, I wonder if we won't see the vendors start to adapt to start making code spaces friendly versions of their tools. So. Yes, exactly. And uh, just out of the box, again, just due to the way that VS Code is architecturally, almost every extension just works. Um, right. And so if you are someone who, you know, is using Visual Studio Code much more often, um, then then almost every extension, I think, that you would be used to using will just work. Although, I mean, I, there are such different work styles. You know, the IDE, everything added in approaches studio versus the much more modular separated VS Code approach. Just, I, I don't know they overlap much at all. I don't really cross between them. There's like yeah, some projects right. I'm using code for and some projects I'm using studio for. Totally. And, and I agree with you. The, the one difference I've seen in my own workflow, and maybe maybe I'm unique here, is it's kind mm. of like the ad hoc review or the ad hoc yeah. change. Like typically I've got a big unit of work that I'm working on and that might take, you know, a week or whatever to pull off. And whilst I'm in flight of that, I don't really want to mess around with my local setup in order to help someone else or, you know, review a PR or something like that. So to be able to spin up something in on the side where it's like, yeah. hey, look, even though it's the same project, I'm able to, you know, do a pretty deep PR review or, you know, something like that and that not have any impact on what's going on, um, you know, that's pretty huge, at least for me. Uh, but again, maybe yeah. maybe I'm unique in that case. I You're think talking so. about how we're frequently terrified by Visual Studio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know there's a lot of people trying to make uh, make that life better. I think it's a pretty normal scenario, actually. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and, and it is, uh, you know, in terms of the project itself, um, as I mentioned, being an interesting challenge, like, you know, we do do a lot of deep infrastructure things with Azure. Um, you know, and there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that um, uh, we're doing that, you know, not everyone else in the company is doing. And so I know when I'm on meetings with with different organizational groups, they're like, now, what do you want to do? <laughs> and um, about, because, and you know, why would you ever do that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the typical Microsoft question. Yeah. And don't worry, I, I work for Microsoft and I get that from, uh, to myself. Why would so, you ever you know. do that? <laughs> um, and so, you know, the, the good thing I can say is that most of the time they're like, oh, that makes really cool sense. Hey, what you're doing sounds really cool. Can you send me a link? Yeah. Um, Carry on. And, and so, um, you know, for the most part, um, you know, that's all been really interesting. Um, and again, really cool project to work on. Awesome stuff, man. This is really exciting. Yeah, it is. And it just, it, it, I think about some of the transitory projects I work on once in a while with different people, and this solves a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. It will be interesting to see what the billing finally comes down to when it comes out of beta. Yeah, I think I, I would hope that, you know, where most people land on it is that, hey, look, you know, for the benefit that it provides, 
when you add up, you know, how much, you know, keeping up to date with, you know, latest laptops and, you know, all this sort of stuff that it, 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 it makes, it's at a price point where it makes sense. Um, yeah. but you know, we'll, we'll obviously see. Um, and you know, I know, um, we've, we've got a break even as well. And so right. that's where it's like, Hey, look, you know, uh, trying to make all of that work and, you know, uh, try and make something that's, that's good for everyone. Like it's gotta be sustainable. Yes, exactly. I got to admit, I haven't used the online collaboration stuff in visual studio or GitHub. It, it just isn't, um, something I've had to do. Anytime that uh, I've had to collaborate, it's usually been over Zoom or something like that with one person. But, but I can see on a on a bigger team uh, how important this is, and especially in the days of COVID, how important it is to be able to collaborate remotely. So well done. Yeah, man. yeah, and and that's something we've definitely seen is you know with with the advent of more people working from home. Um, yeah. more people, you know, reaching out for, you know, tools to support that. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, we're very fortunate to be able to be in a position to, to help a lot of people with that. Indeed. Um, and help be a part yep. of what makes, you know, the, the current timing uh, of our society possible. I think there's a whole new class of work here that we've been uh, fully grasped. Yeah. The, the idea of bringing in an expert on a short duration, a day or two on a project. Mm-hmm to focus their expertise on something to just get it fixed. Like that's kind of a, it's cause it's just too hard to onboard people normally. Like this yep. might actually open the door to, I need a day of your time to tune this. Yep. And even the fact that you can have, you know, one or two people shadowing that person, uh, not from a, like a security perspective, but from a, like, right. Hey, if you've got any questions, you know, we can, we can help guide you sure. through to the point where you can actually solve the problem that we're not sure of. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's really powerful. Yeah, good stuff, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for being here with us for this hour. Not a worries, anytime. Yeah, and uh, good luck out there. I appreciate it, and uh, likewise for everyone else. Interesting times ahead, indeed. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.